Hey, what's up, everybody? So this is called The Bible According to a Militant Atheist. <laughs> Basically, a friend of mine uh, sent me this meme. It's like an atheist meme. I'm guessing it's an atheist meme because, as you'll soon see, um, there's a lot of things on there that they're just very jaded about the Bible and, you know, how the Bible presents the story of God. I mean, the, the, the title of this meme is called A Short, a Short History of God. And it's got, you know, these these bullet points that we're going to go through. So, you know, normally this is a little bit different kind of episode for me, but normally I wouldn't pick apart something like this, but there's so many critical misunderstandings of the Bible and of Christianity in general that I'm like, okay, you know, especially my friend was like, dude, you know, I, I just started reading the Bible. I was super, actually super excited for him. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm really, and he seemed like really gun ho about it. And I was like, gosh, that's, that's so awesome. And then he told me that a while ago he got this meme somebody sent to him and he's like, you know, I don't know how to, how to respond to these things. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, like your heart just breaks, especially for somebody who is finding appreciation of the Bible, wants to learn more about it. And, and then we, we come up with these challenges from scoffers most of the time, people who you know, it's funny, most of the time people who who don't know very much, I guess you could say this in general, but we'll, we'll just say with the Bible, who, know, who don't know very much about the Bible, they're often the ones that have the harshest criticisms. And so I think that's something to keep in mind, you know, and, and especially as believers, we we want to have a response, at least to some degree. I'm, I'm always the type that everything that I believe and I do I have to know why I do it. Um, otherwise, you know, you you get into situations where, especially if you wrestle with doubt, which I do a lot, just in general, you know, your doubt gets the better of you, right? So especially if you find yourself like that, if you wrestle with doubt a lot, then having a reason as to why you believe what you believe is very important. And the good thing is Christianity and the Bible are very much based in evidence and science Biblical archaeology is just a huge deal if you look into it. There's just, con especially in the last 20 years, there have been so many discoveries thanks to new technology. So anyway, kind of deviating. I wanted to break these points down and, you know, basically just go through point by point with the Bible, with theology, and look at what these claims are because th there's a lot of really big claims. They're not just like silly little claims. And so... I think they're important to look at. So a couple disclaimers before we get started. First and foremost, I am going to use the Bible <laughs> mostly. So if you don't believe in the value of the Bible or you don't believe that it's reliable, that's a whole, you know, several hours worth of content. So I'm not going to get into why the Bible is reliable in this uh, episode, but if you don't believe the Bible is reliable, then you may have a, a challenge with this, or if you question the reliability of the Bible. However, however, that's besides the point. This person, whoever made this meme, um, they used the Bible to come up with these claims, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't know who God was. You wouldn't know who Jesus was. We know that from the Bible. We didn't know about the flood. I mean, other cultures have the flood uh, myth or story. They have their own mythology of it is what I was going to say. But the flood did happen. But we know about these things from the Bible. And so ultimately, we're going to use the Bible because if you're going to use the Bible to make claims, then you have to be accurate in your claims. 
So that's why I'm going to use the Bible. So it doesn't matter really if you believe the Bible is reliable or not, because we're going to see what the claims are, and then we'll see what the Bible actually has to say. Uh, the second thing is, I already kind of mentioned this, people who tend to scoff, who have a lot to say about why the Bible isn't this or that, they're usually the people that, that know the least about it. I was one of those people. You know, I, if you asked me a couple of years ago if I wanted to read the Bible, I mean, it was not even on my mind, you know, and now I think it's literally the most profound thing that you can ever spend time with. So, you know, don't ever doubt the, the power of God to open your eyes. And it's one of those things where the Bible is camouflaged with humility. You know, the Bible begins with the creation of the world. There's a lot of places it could have began, but it begins in a place that's very supernatural. And that's on purpose because if you're, pride is blinding you to the fact that there is a creator, then you're, that's a test. That's like a gatekeeper. If you don't believe that, then the rest of the stuff you're not going to believe. And so as we're going to get in, you'll see how that plays out. And the third thing I want to mention is Satan convinced Adam and Eve of three lies back in the garden. And these lies are very much present still today. The first lie is that God isn't trustworthy, like you can't count on his word. That's when Satan said, oh, you're not going to die if you eat from the forbidden fruit. The second one is that God can't be trusted in the sense like his character, like he's not morally perfect. And that's implied because Satan said, well, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, you're going to become like him, as if God was like hiding secretly power from Adam and Eve. So Satan questioned God's character. And lastly, Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they could be like God meaning that, you know, they didn't need God for their lives. God isn't sovereign. So these three lies are very important because you're going to see them, and I want you to pay attention throughout this and in your own life, because anybody guaranteed, anybody who comes up with these kind of challenges, they've bought into one of, or all of them most likely, of these lies, that God is not good, his character is not perfect, He's hiding something. He's, you know, an evil tyrant or whatever. Uh, that he's not trustworthy. You can't count on his word or the Bible. Um, and that he's not in control, right? That you can be the one to determine what's right and wrong. That's what the whole story was about. And that's why it's the first thing that we learn. So just keep that in mind because those things are echoed. It's, there's nothing, the book of Ecclesiastes, is one of my favorite books, says there's nothing new under the sun. And it's true. You know, we just keep repeating the same mistakes. And the world is very much entrapped by these three lies still today. You'll see them echoed as we go on. Um, the fourth point I want to make before we get started is this is not <laughs> like to, to scoff back at somebody who's a militant atheist. Actually, I want to bring clarity because these points that they bring up in this meme, although they're very insulting to anybody with a genuine faith in Christ, um, they're, I wouldn't say legitimate claims, but they're, they're common claims that people make, especially people who are very militant about their atheism. So the point is we want to bring clarity to that. We want to bring evidence. We want to bring clarity. The second point is I genuinely hope that whoever wrote this or who believes these things comes to repentance because ultimately, look, the world is coming to an end. You don't have to be, you know, 
super religious to realize that. Just look around you. It's going to hell in a handbasket. And you don't know when you're going to die besides that. There has to be something more. And the Bible gives us the answer. So you have to get right with God. And the only way to, write, to do that is with Jesus. So I genuinely hope that this is a benefit, especially if you already have a faith that it edifies you. But then if you're questioning, if, you, if you're not sure, if you're agnostic and, and you're wondering, then I hope that you see the truth. I hope that you see that the Bible is true, that it is the word of God, that it can guide you. You know, Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> I love that acronym. Uh, can't take credit for it, but I think it's a great one. And it really is. It's it's the story of mankind being um, re reconciled to our creator. And it's such a beautiful story. Last point I want to make before we hit the road here with this crazy stuff is this video is intended for Christians, obviously. If you have an open mind, I welcome you. Um, if you're a militant atheist, you probably will either scoff at me or... <laughs> You're probably not watching this. So, you know, I just hope that you see the clarity. I hope that it edifies you. And I hope that it helps you defend your own faith going forward. So without further ado, let's do this. This meme is called A Short History of God. So it has about 15 points or so. We're just going to go through them. And so the first one says, number one. So remember, this is like a timeline. And just goes one, two, three, four. And so I'm just going according to the timeline that this person has established. So number one, creates Adam and Eve. Okay, that's that's accurate. So far, so good. <laughs> I think we're on board with that. God created Adam and Eve. He created man in his image uh, as a representative for him to steward creation. So, okay, that's accurate. Let's go to number two. Number two, creates evil. Okay, so here we can start with some of this with stuff. So he says he God created evil. So there's two ways to answer this cuz this is not accurate. God didn't create evil. And this is actually a huge point, right? This is actually a really big point that atheists use. It's called the problem of evil. The problem of evil is basically if there's evil in the world and God created everything, then he must be evil if he created it. Or, you know, there's some something wrong with God's character. Again, there it is, right? So, first and foremost, we're going to have a lot of responses to this. First and foremost, evil is not something. That's something, you know, it's like heat and cold. Is cold something in and of itself? No, actually, heat, cold is the absence of heat. So, evil is not something. It is the absence of good. It is the absence of God's presence and influence. And the Bible is very clear about that. You know, that, that's something that the Bible confirms over and over again. That's the whole reason for the fall. We fell from God's presence. And as a result, <laughs> the only thing possible was evil. So there's two ways to answer this, that God did not create evil. First off, in Genesis, God created a lot of things. You can read through the whole Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But it never says God created evil. He created man for an exclusive purpose and gave him things to fulfill that purpose, like creativity, intelligence, uh, you know, whatever, emotions, those kind of things, right? Sexuality, identity. We're supposed to have those things. But without being anchored to God, 
these things become evil. I mean, look at look at the, some of the most evil people in the world. They were very creative. Okay, so without anchored being anchored to God, that creativity, that intelligence that we've been given, it just goes haywire. And so that's the point. Evil is not something that God created. God gave us gifts and we misused them. Okay, so that's that's obvious from the whole Genesis account. Nowhere did God create evil. Another example that sort of backs this up is a metaphor, which is, you know, like if you ever cook, if you like to cook, I like to cook. If you use a very sharp knife and you cut yourself, does that make the knife like evil? Does it make the company, should you sue, sue the company? I mean, now nowadays people do that kind of thing, but you know, that's just stupid. So ultimately the knife is not wrong or bad for doing its job. The company making a high quality knife is not to blame for making a knife that, that could lead to serious injury because the nature of the knife is supposed to cut. Same thing with a scalpel, anything else. You, so what's the, what's the point? The point is the person who's using it needs to be very skilled. If a person who's not skilled is using the tool, you will have unintended consequences. So how does that relate to, to us? Well, we weren't created to just do whatever we want. We were created for God to use us as vessels to, to do his work in the world, to enjoy that. God's perfect. So of course his will, he's the most skilled person there is. But instead we obey the devil. And the devil was using our skills and turning us towards evil. So you see, you can't blame God for evil because God gave us the ability to be self-aware, creative, intelligent, and that was exclusively intended for a relationship with him. So instead, we didn't listen to him, we didn't engage in that relationship, we engaged in a relationship with the devil, who's selfish, and he's like the ultimate example of selfishness. And so pride pretty much twisted everything that God gave us, and that's what caused evil. So God did not create evil. He gave us the tools with the responsibility to be in a relationship with him. Those tools inherently come with evil, with, 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 the, with the possibility to be misused, right? The drawback of being self-aware and conscious is that you fall in love with yourself. That's the illusion of the first-person perspective. It's your pride, right? That's what happened with the devil, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but... You know, self-awareness wasn't intended to be like this self-serving thing. It was intended to be in relationship with God. Now, if we look at Lucifer's fall, that's the other way to answer this. Did, did God create Lucifer then? Lucifer is supposed to be evil. So why did God create Lucifer? Well, God didn't create Lucifer to be evil. He created Lucifer to be the most beautiful and, and shining example of God's craftsmanship. And here's a couple of verses for you. Ezekiel 28. There's not too much on the fall of Lucifer, um, but there's, there's a little bit. So Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19 says something like this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. 
and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Here's a good one. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So that's initially, I mean, this is in Ezekiel, it's addressed to the king of Tyre, but it's, it's obvious that it kind of, you know, describes something more than that. And, and a lot of people consider this to be talking about the fall of Lucifer, who was, you know, God's most brilliant created being in the sense that he was, you know, God's craftsmanship. But because he was self-aware and because he was so beautiful, he let that get go to his head. That was the inherent drawback. And so, you know, that's what caused evil. God didn't intend for him to be evil. God actually created him to be blameless and beautiful. But Lucifer, being a self-aware being, chose himself over God. And another parallel verse to that, which is very important, is back in um, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. And this is, again, it's one of those things where it's kind of talking about a person, but then there's parallels with the devil as well. So it says, how, this is 12 through 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Keep in mind these I wills. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So those are the five I wills of Satan that are pretty commonly referred to as that. But, you know, ultimately, it's pretty clear what's going on here, right? We don't need that much evidence, which is that Satan was created to be, you know, one of God's closest associates. Let's put it that way. But Satan decided to rebel because he got proud. He decided that he could be God, which he can't, but he wanted to be God. He wanted to replace God and he wanted to challenge God because of pride. And that pride is what he tempted Adam and Eve with, which is why mankind also fell. So these things are really important because ultimately, you know, we, we want to blame God for evil, but we forget to see the bigger picture of what's going on. God did, God did not create evil. He created self-awareness and he created things to be perfect and good. But certain things just come with inherent drawbacks unless they're used properly. And that's the whole point of the Bible is to, to show the relationship, the need for a relationship between man and God. Now I want to parallel really quick. Um, before we go to the next point, I want to parallel the five I wills of Satan, which you just heard, which are very self-affirming with the five I wills of God in the Old Testament. Actually, I think there's more than five, but, and then there's I wills that Jesus said, just to look at the difference in character. So in Exodus 6, verse uh, 6 through 8, where, you know, God is basically promising them what he's going to do. He says, I will bring you out from 
under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Very different. It's all about service and giving and generosity. Now let's look at what Jesus said. Here's seven I wills of Jesus. And these are throughout the New Testament, but I will make you fishers of men. I will give you rest. I will keep you. I will love you. I will do what you ask in my name. I will come again and see you again. I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Free of charge. (laughs) So, you know, anybody who thinks that God created evil, you just just aren't aware of the bigger picture of the full history. And that's why I said most people who scoff at this kind of stuff, they don't really understand the Bible to begin with. Unfortunately, unfortunately, because the Bible is very beautiful. God did not create evil. God created self-aware life, and that self-aware life is completely dependent on God. Otherwise, it will self-destruct, as you can plainly see. In the devil's case, he's self-destructive, and everybody who follows him is self-destructive. Because God is life. God is the source of life. Anything apart from God dies. So, So I hope that gives a little clarity. Let's go on to the next point. Number three. (laughs) <laughs> this is just, it's just crazy. Populates the world through incest. All right. So let, let's tackle this very plainly. If you look up the etymology of the word incest, uh, it's from around 1200 AD. So that's what, like 800 years ago. And it says the crime of sexual intercourse between near kindred from old French incest, eh, incest, lechery, fornication, and directly from Latin, incestum, unchastity, impious unchastity, also specifically sexual intercourse between close relatives. Okay, so we kind of get the idea, but this was, this word, okay, so just take a note of this, the word for incest didn't arise in our language until, you know, 1200 AD. Okay, now, I'm sure the Latin was probably a little older than that, but the point is, if we look in the Bible now, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18, just pull it up here. And this is, (laughs) I mean, if you read Leviticus 18, God just lays it out, man. He's just, every possible dirty thing that you could do, he just lays it out. I'm not going to read all of this because it's a very long chapter, but he lists point by point, all the all the relationships you shouldn't have. Let's put it that way. Leviticus 18. So I'm just going to read a couple verses here. Speak to the, this is chapter 18, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the point with all this, and again, there's a whole, (laughs) 
You read it, it gets down and dirty. I mean, it just really straight up. God doesn't mess around. But the point is, you know, first and foremost, Leviticus, this happened probably more than 2,000 years before the word incest came into the modern language. So God had already prescribed this 2,000 years before the official definition. Okay, that's number one. So God obviously cares about this thing. Number two, if you look at the context of Leviticus, people who were doing incest were all the other people. (laughs) Egyptians, Canaanites. These people had no excuse me, no regard for anything. They were just doing whatever. They were sacrificing their children. They were engaging in all kinds of lewd sexual behavior. So God was trying to set them apart. Now, two points on this, because there is, if you read the Bible previous to that in in Genesis, there are many cases where people were marrying, intermarrying. You know, Noah will get into, actually, he does bring up a point or she, whoever wrote this, bring up a point about incest later. We'll get into that. But, you know, there's cases of of people intermarrying in the Bible before the Exodus. And so the question is, you know, why why wasn't this addressed previously to Exodus? Well, there's there's two points here. And the first one is, when God created Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, so first and foremost, Incest is close relatives, sisters, nephews, father, grandfather, things like that. Well, after a few generations, I mean, if you read the Bible, they do have Cain's lineage and Abel, you know, Seth's lineage. But if you actually read it, it says that Adam and Eve had more sons than daughters. They had probably a ton of them. And we'll get into more of this and why this is important. But eventually, you're not going to have, you know, you're not going to be marrying your your sister anymore right so after a few generations it's, it's not a not an issue anymore now again from our perspective that's like ooh, that's kind of weird right but you got to remember two things back thousands and thousands of years ago if you do believe in the creation narrative of the bible that adam and eve were that was it that was they were the first ones their genes were the most robust they had perfect genomes which are very far from the case today. So what does that mean? Well, their genomes, they were fine. They, they, they had all the information, and so they had to multiply. It wasn't an issue. Okay. Uh, so, and eventually there wouldn't be intermarrying anymore because there'd be so many people. So it's, you know, it's all just different people. Now, the problem with evolution, and this is, this might be an old can of worms, but the problem with evolution is, you cannot have things that evolve, period. You don't have evolution by natural selection. You have adaptation. Things change, for sure. But things don't evolve. They don't get better. If a wolf turns into poodles, but you don't get, you can't turn a poodle into a wolf. Never. It's not going to ever happen. Why? Because the wolf is a perfect template. That's the way God created it. And over time, these genetic changes they lose information with every generation. And so if you understand this, and I'll link an article um, with this episode somewhere. I'll link an article from Answers in Genesis. But either way, you can look in Answers in Genesis. They have a lot of good stuff on this. 
they have a lot of good rebuttals to to these things and and questioning, you know, like, is it possible that Adam and Eve were the only ones in the beginning? And it is possible from a biological perspective. And so, you know, if that's the case and they had perfect genomes, I'm sure God created a way to where, you know, the, the issues that we have today, like if you were to marry your sister today, first off, that's against the law, but even just from a genetic perspective, that's not good. We, we're at the tail end of the Genesis curse. You got to remember the context. Man fell. God cursed the world to, di- to, de- to die and decay. And right now we're at the end of that curse. <laughs> like we're at the worst part of it. So yeah, we're weaker than ever. Our genomes are, are crap compared to, you know, what they used to be. So the point is, the point is this, ultimately thousands and thousands of years ago is not today. We can't project our society and our culture, our understanding on something that was, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. There's a lot of weird stories in the Bible where, you know, like Lot, Lot, his daughters got him drunk so that they could have progeny and reproduce because their presumably their genes were pure. You know, they were saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. God had shown favor to them. And so they didn't have any way to have, you know, sons. And this was long before the Exodus. And so these types of things, you know, Abraham, uh, I believe in Sarah were, it was like his half sister. Uh, they were related somehow. Isaac and Rebecca, same thing. So, so there was a lot of intermarrying, but it wasn't frowned upon. It was needed because you needed to reproduce. Life was harsh, man. Life was, it's a whole different story. So when we look back at these things, we're like, oh, you know, Bible it promoted incest. It's like, no, it didn't. It's very clear from Leviticus onward when people had already multiplied on the earth. It's like, okay, you know, it's time to, to put some boundaries on this stuff. And so when when this point says populates the world through incest, it's just first off, the world did not get populated by incest. The world got populated. Incest wasn't an issue until very thousands of years later that it was addressed. And eventually, from two people, you had so many people that, you know, you could cross, you know, breed where it wouldn't be even counted as incest anymore. I mean, if you look at, for example, all the world leaders, I mean, we're not getting into conspiracy theories, but all the world leaders of today, George Bush, Dick Cheney, Obama, they're all related. They're all, I don't know, whatever variant cousin of each other. I mean, they're all related. And so that would be the same thing here. Eventually, after a couple of generations, you're not, it's not incest anymore, even by our definition today. So this is just plain wrong. But now the real, <laughs> this is the real problem with this. Why is this important? The, besides the fact that it's not accurate, why it's important is because it questions the validity of the Bible, number one. So if the Bible's wrong about something like this, then where else is it wrong? Right? And so if, we, if you're a believer, then you, you have to really embrace the fact that the Bible is is detailing supernatural things. That's number one. And it's true. Right? That's something that, that we have to work on as believers because we're, we're constantly made to doubt. Remember the three lies. Doubting God's word is one of them. Now, the other thing is, you know, the Bible is very clear as to the impact of, of Christ coming to earth and saving us 
as a reversal to Adam. Okay, so so we're going to look to Romans chapter 5 for this. It's a great chapter. But verse 15 through 19. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trans- trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So look, this is such a beautiful verse. And and the reason why this is so important is this whole Adam and Eve thing and whether they were the first human beings or, you know, that's just all nonsense. It's very important because it, besides it questioning the Bible's validity, here's the bigger deal. If Adam and Eve were not the only people and the evolutionists are right, which evolution is impossible, remember, things do not evolve, kinds do not evolve in kinds. Fish do not evolve into cats. They just become different looking fish. Evolution is nonsense. But anyway, besides the point, the point is if the evolutionists are right, and the, and the first population of human beings was, you know, 60,000 people or something, then what the Bible is saying is that God is unjust for condemning all of humanity for only two people's sins out of the other, whatever, 50,000 that were there. Do you see the point? Do you see how this is questioning God's character again? So ultimately... We have to take the Bible's word on it, which is that there was one man and one woman. Now, whether you believe in that or not doesn't mean that it's affecting the truth. I, you know, we don't understand the Trinity. You don't understand God being self-existing, but we believe that and, and we trust that. There's things that we just aren't capable of understanding that are supernatural, and, and this is one of them. And so ultimately, why is this important? If, if one man sinned, and damned all of humanity, then the equal thing to do would be to save one man, you know, eye for an eye type of thing. But God saved the entire human race because of one man's trespass. Do you see how that shows God's glory, his mercy, his abundant love? The fact that he flipped that upside down and just poetically. But if that's not the case... And there were a bunch of people around and, you know, God just chose to punish everybody because of two people's uh, disobedience. Then then that takes away all the glory from God. It makes him into this evil tyrant who's unfair. And it makes the cross seem, you know, silly. And again, you know, this is, we'll get into this, but, you know, the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It's one of my favorite verses. And it's so true. People who are dying spiritually and need the cross the most, they think that it's foolishness. So, all right. Point number four. Surprised the evil exists. Okay. I'm guessing this refers to the interchange in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned. So let's take a look at that. Genesis 3, 18, uh, let's see, 8 through 13. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. Okay. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, (laughs) she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I always chuckle at these things, always blaming somebody else. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So this interchange, I'm, I'm guessing this is where it's from when he says surprise that evil exists. So if you don't read the Bible and you were to just read this, maybe it seems that God's like, oh, what? Did you did you do something that I didn't know about? That's That's one way to think about it. But ultimately... That's not really the truth. You know, if you believe in God, who's a transcendent being, who is omniscient, who knows, who knows you from the day you were born, who's, who's predetermined your steps, you know, who sees everything, then it's impossible for him to be surprised. He's not surprised at anything. That's the whole point. God doesn't exist in the paradigm that we exist. He's not surprised by anything. And that's, I mean, that's, we can't imagine that because we don't experience that. But we have to believe in that because he's not like us. And so what's really going on here? Well, what's going on is that God, if you understand his character rightly, God isn't like, what did you do? Like some telenovela. God is giving them a chance to repent. He knows what they did. (laughs) He knew ahead of time. But he's giving them a chance to repent. He's saying, what did you do to give them a chance to say, well, all right, I I owned up to it, right? And that's the whole point, because if God accused them right away, they wouldn't have a chance to repent. So he's giving them a chance to repent, to see what what are you going to say? Are you going to be honest? Are you going to lie? Now, if you look at just literally like the next chapter to, to see the progression of human ego and evil, Genesis 4, 9 through 12. Cain just killed his brother. <laughs> and and this, again, this you got to read everything in context. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? As if God didn't know. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground and so on. So, you know, like, of course God knew. Of course he knew. His Abel's blood is crying out to him from the ground. God knows everything. But 
you know, did, why did he ask, what did you do? Where's your brother? To see what Cain would do and to show a precedent. That's why it's there. God shows precedence. He doesn't just like react to things like we do. He shows precedence. When God asked Cain, where's your brother? He knew. But Cain immediately lied about it. He's like, oh, I don't know. So we go from admitting fault, literally to the next generation, you're already lying about murdering. And so that's a precedent to show us many thousands of years later what life is like without the influence of God. Immediately, within the first generation, people are already killing each other and lying about it. Okay, so that's a precedent. It's not about God being surprised. It's He's showing. It's like show and tell. Look, see? Look what happens without me being in your life, without you doing what I'm telling you to do. You're killing and lying. So that's it's not about God being surprised that evil exists. He's showing a precedent. But again, in order for you to understand that, it has it requires you to see God's character rightly. It goes back to those three lies from the garden. If you don't see God's character rightly, that he's some fallible being that's anxious, insecure like you are, then you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand what he's saying. So again, we can't we can't project. All right. Number five. Clue he's clueless about how to deal with evil. Oh gosh, man. These things I tell you, they get just it gets worse and worse. So this couldn't be farther from the truth. This really couldn't be farther from the truth. And ultimately for any Christian that is a sincere Christian, I, I would assume that you'd agree, because ultimately Christianity is the solution to the problem of evil. The whole story of the Bible is how God reconciled humanity to himself despite evil. It is about how God solved the problem of evil. Because God is good. The fact that God is good is the is the scariest thing about him. Why is that scary? Because if God is perfectly good, then he has to be a judge. He has to pass judgment on everything that happens. And when we disobeyed him, he passed judgment on humanity. Satan knew that. He was already judged. But he wanted to destroy God's prized creation because he's spiteful. And so he tempted man away. God had to judge him. And Satan thought, oh, I got the last laugh. But that's not at all the case. God has the last laugh because he redeemed us from death. He found a way through Christ for us to not be judged according to our work, which we would never make in never make in a million years. We'd never be perfect because we have a sinful nature, but rather be judged according to our faith. Do we have faith or do we not? Do we have faith in Christ or do we not? And so it's a brilliant thing. It's really so simple and so brilliant, but you can't see it if you're blinded by pride. Right? Death was a curse upon the world to show us that without God, there is no life. We were made for an exclusive relationship with God. What that means is we have to be in relationship with him constantly. But how would you realize that? If you know, you look at Adam and Eve, they never had history. They never had 
uh, you know, context. They never, they didn't grow up as teenagers to have awkward years. They didn't have any, they were created. So they didn't know they were made perfectly, but they had no context. And so of course they were ignorant. They fell to sin. We have history. We have context. We have the Bible. And so we have all of history to see, wow, you know, like mankind has really messed this up. We need a savior. We have our own lives as proof. Look at your own life. We grow old. We die. People around us die. We get sick. This can't be the way things are. So there has to be something more. And Christianity solves these problems. And it solves it so beautifully. Another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the lies that Satan brought up in the Garden of Eden, they're not just to Adam and Eve. They're to the whole heavenly host. They're to all of creation. God could have just snapped his fingers and destroyed Satan immediately. But So why didn't he? That's the question, right? Why did, why did God let evil happen in the world? Well, think about it. If he had destroyed the devil, the devil would have been a martyr to his false ideas. The, the point, you know, every leader who's ever had to create something goes through this. Their integrity gets challenged. Their reliability gets challenged. Their character gets challenged by people who are scoffers underneath them. And so if you react and you fire those people, rather than letting reality play itself out so you can show that you're right, that's a different story. And that's exactly what's happened here. The devil is falsifying his own claims against God by being allowed to have his way with the world for a short period of time. Okay, so so there's that's brilliant on God's part. Brilliant, because ultimately the devil cannot accuse God that he's not reliable or that his word isn't the right way because now people have obeyed the devil and we can see the consequences. It's very clear. Look at today. I mean, everybody you know, in power worships the devil. And so is it any more clear that that's the wrong way to go, that God's right? The devil's falsifying his own claim. So evil was necessary. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the other thing is, look, if you're a believer, you know that the end is an eternal paradise with God. Is any of this going to matter? Is any of this going to matter after a day of living in heaven with, with Christ? No, it's meaningless. God's going to make everything right again, and even more so. And yet, you know, we, we are so caught up with this whole problem of evil thing. Yeah, the world is evil. We live in a fallen world. That's why we need a savior. Because we die, we get sick. Other people are evil. But we're promised an eternity with none of that. And Christ is the only one who can promise that. So, yeah. God is not clueless about how to deal with evil. He's actually solved it in the most beautiful, poetic way possible. And that's the entire Bible. So I encourage you to get familiar with it. Okay, number six. Boy, I tell you, these are these just get crazier and crazier. Drowns the entire planet, saving one family of very, very skilled shipbuilders. Hmm. Partly true. Okay, so he did save one family. That's Noah's family. But... You know, you got to be careful with these little implications here. They weren't shipbuilders. Noah wasn't a shipbuilder. God gave Noah the plans to build an ark. And 
gave him the spiritual and mental resources to, to do it and the physical resources. In fact, somebody named John, I don't know how to pronounce it, Huibers, Huibers, spent 19 years constructing a replica of the ark based on the exact specifications provided in Genesis. So again, you know, it's, you're always trying to take away glory from God. God was the one who provided the plans, who provided the resources, gave foreknowledge, and helped everything. So here's the other question, though. But why did God drown the entire world? You ever ask yourself that, my militant atheist friend? Well, if you read, if you read Genesis 6, 1 through 8, Let's take a look at it. Okay, Genesis 6. We're actually going to go, let's go to 5 through 8. The Lord saw how, this is wickedness in the world. This is only a few generations after Adam and Eve, by the way. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I mean, you cannot get more like absolute in that. (laughs) The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe the face of the earth of the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So look, (laughs) a couple things going on here. Number one, you can't get more of an absolute statement. If you if you study, and a good book by this um, on this topic is Genesis 6 Giants, Stephen Quayle. If you know anything about the fallen angels, Nephilim, they were a hybrid race. What happened? They tried to corrupt the human genome. They became basically the gods and goddesses of the old ages. They were plundering everything, eating people, destroying. I mean, it was it was absolute madness. Total madness. And it got to the point where like literally everybody was just evil all the time. (laughs) You kidding me? So what is that? Well, that was God showing how quickly the evil, the the world self-destructs without obedience to him. That's a huge precedent. So the question is, well, why did he regret it if he's omniscient? Well... (laughs) Let's put it this way. You know, if somebody told you, hey, I'm going to punch you in the face for no reason, and then I do it, you know the future, right? But, you know, why are you upset about it? Well, are you kidding me? Like, emotions and omniscience, they're not, And you know, Jesus was omniscient, but he had emotions. He wept for Lazarus. You know, he had joy. He, he laughed. I mean, God is a person. Okay, being omniscient doesn't mean he, he doesn't have feelings. You know, in fact, it says God feels indignation every day. <laughs> what does that mean? It means he's, you know, he's tolerating all the evil in the world because he's holy. He's just feeling indignation, but he's restraining himself. So for the sake of the people who are going to be saved, just like he tolerated all that evil for the sake of Noah and his family and the sake of Lot with Sodom and Gomorrah, so many other examples. So ultimately, you know, God is a person. 
And the point of this is that even God, who's perfect, who's morally perfect, experienced regret. That's how bad it got. It's not about God being flawed, which is, again, goes back to one of Satan's lies. It's about mankind being so horrible without God in our life that it made God, who's perfect, regret creating us. That's how bad we got. That's what you need to take out of that story. Not that, you know, I mean, I don't know what else you can take out of it, but it's just, let's move on. Number seven, populates the world through incest again. Okay, so this goes back to the previous point we had with Adam and Eve, incest, you know, and so on. Those things weren't an issue. They weren't because people had to reproduce. And remember, Noah lived to be 900 years old. So if you accept that, I do. I don't understand it, but I accept it. Um, yeah, I think it's totally possible. Look at some creatures like tortoises live to be, I don't know, 500 years old or something. There's sharks that live to be 800 years old. There's trees that live to be thousands of years old. So why is that not possible with human beings? It is possible, but we lose genetic information over time. Things do not get better. That That's the whole point about evolution, why it's a lie. It's, it's teaching you that things are getting better and we're going to get better and we're going to reach our potential. We're going to transcend. That's that's the lie of the Garden of Eden. As old as time, that you can be God. And evolution justifies that. But if you see it rightly, that things are getting worse, things are de-evolving because of the Genesis curse, which the Bible clearly describes, then it's like, oh man, we're not getting better. We don't have any hope. What's our hope? Well, we have a savior. That's our hope. It's going to give us everlasting bodies and a a paradise to live in. That's the hope, not transhumanism, not biohacking, not, you know, supplements. I'm not saying those, you know, supplements aren't bad or anything. I'm just saying, you know, we cannot hope within ourselves. We're not evolving. We're getting worse. And so at the time of Noah, people were still robust genetically. So same issue with Adam and Eve. And again, incest didn't exist much later because they had to reproduce. Noah was chosen because he was pure in his generations. What does that mean? Well, that means he wasn't tainted by the Nephilim, right? Now, there's still argument around whether some of the wives of his sons were, but I don't know of any biblical proof for that. And certainly after the flood, there was still more of that stuff going on, possibly with with angels and, and giants and all that kind of stuff. But the point is this, they had to reproduce. Okay, it wasn't seen as, as, you know, it wasn't commanded against because they had to reproduce. It wasn't incest. And eventually it wouldn't be incest anyway because they would have so many children. Okay, moving on. Enough, enough talk about incest. Number eight, surprised that evil exists again. Okay, at this point, I don't know what it's referring to. Like the other one, based on the chronology of this meme, it was clear that it was referring, I mean, to me, it was clear. Maybe I'm wrong. It was referring to the interchange in the garden where God's like, what have you done? But this one, I'm I'm not clear what the surprised is referring to. Like where after the flood was God surprised? I, I don't know. In Genesis, you know, God covered those, we, we covered those questions that Genesis 
was more of a precedent to give, to show us what it looks like between one generation and the next in terms of a call to repentance. Adam admitted his sin. <laughs> next generation over, Cain already started lying about murdering. So that's a precedent. So I don't know what this is referring to. God's never surprised. God doesn't work like us. So this is a problem with most people who don't understand the Bible is they don't understand God's character. Again, it just goes back to those three lies. God's word, God's character, God's sovereignty. And in this case, it's God's character. You don't understand who God is to make a claim like this. He's never surprised. Never. And that's fascinating. I mean, to me, it's like, really? Like, you're never surprised? That's crazy. He's in total peace because he's in total control because he's sovereign. If you don't believe that God's sovereign, then you believe he's insecure and all. It's like, that's not That's not the God of the Bible. So, okay, moving on. Number nine. Sends disease, starvation, plagues, tsunamis, <laughs> etc. Okay, so first off, there were no tsunamis. If you're referring to the crossing of the Red Sea and how the Egyptians were swallowed up, that's the only thing I can think of, um, then that wasn't a tsunami. That was a supernatural event where the Red Sea was parted and then it came back. So those are two very different things. Um, the second thing is the plagues in Egypt they, they weren't on the entire world okay the plagues were on Egypt and there's a reason why they were on Egypt because Egypt had oppressed the Israelites for 400 years this is literally three times more than the slavery that happened in America and yet for some reason here we kind of just gloss over it and the Egyptians had given themselves to false idols False gods, they were doing, you know, incest, remember, all kinds of stuff that God commanded later. They're doing all kinds of naughty things. So, yeah, God is a judge, and he's also executioner. And the other thing is, God used these plagues as a way to show his supernatural power so that the Egypt, so that the Israelites would know <laughs> who was their God. Showing them proof right, of his omniscience, of his sovereignty. You know, many people have a problem with the whole judgment thing, and they see that, oh, God, the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament. No, it's not. It's the same God. He's the same God. God had to be good and pass judgment. And through Christ, we can avoid that judgment. That's the whole point. <laughs> Right, Christ came to fulfill the law so that there would be a way out of judgment. Their judgment is coming. And like I said, whoever wrote this, whoever believes in these kind of things, I really hope you I hope you repent and you see the truth. Because judgment is coming. You know, when in our society today, if if a judge in a courtroom sends a criminal to life in prison or whatever, or the death sentence, do we say that that judge is immoral? No. That's that's really stupid. We don't say that. Why? Because it's the judge's job to commit a sentence. Well, God is the ultimate judge. God is the author of morality. You wouldn't recognize that there's evil in the world unless you had a conscience. So who created your conscience? Evolution? No. Evolution didn't create your conscience. 
Did culture create your conscience? No, because some things are wrong in other cultures, like marrying little kids that are, you know, right in other cultures. Did government create your culture? No. Sometimes what's legal and what's right are two very different things. So you cannot come to an objective moral standard without God. And this is, this is the, the thing where, you know, it's just so funny to me. The problem of evil that the atheists bring up as a way to question or denigrate God's character is actually the best proof that God exists. Because you can't have a conscience without a sense of morality, an objective law being broken. And God, you can't have a conscience without somebody authoring that law, creating that information. It doesn't come from evolution. The only plausible explanation for a law is that there's a lawgiver. That there's somebody who created your conscience and wrote the law on your heart, just like the Bible says. So ultimately... Yeah, as an atheist, you have to be a relativist. You shouldn't even complain about evil if you're an atheist. But atheists complain about evil all the time. So this is a big problem where the atheists have, they're not reconciling just this gross hypocrisy because, again, you cannot have moral standards without objective moral standards, without God. You can't. You try to take God out of the equation, which they do, they stumble trying to find a way to explain this this feeling, this icky feeling when we see evil in the world. Well, the Bible has a clear explanation. You were created in the image of God to be a moral being, to have a conscience. That conscience is like a little rule book that God himself wrote for you. Now, you can choose to ignore it and, and burn your conscience, but doesn't mean he didn't create it. So... You know, these things we have to remember. God is, because he created the conscience, he's the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden. To to think that you're right, to think that you can decide what's right and wrong, which is relativism, is to be God. That's the whole story. Man forsook, is that the right word? Forsook, forsaked <laughs> uh, God's judgment. Listen to Satan. I said, you know what? I'll make up. I'll make up my own rules. I'll know the difference between what's good and what's bad for my life. And that's pride. That's pride. And that that's what I believe. The tree. That whole story is explaining, which is pride made us fall. And if you look at today, I mean, every today it's all about truth. It's all about making your own truth. You know, you talk about the Bible, and suddenly you get scoffed at because the Bible presents an objective truth. So this is the world we live in, and it's ruled by the, the lies of the devil. So you can't take offense to God being a judge. He's doing his job, and he's perfect at it, so nobody can question that. And he enacted judgment on the Egyptians for their many crimes. Yeah, that's, you know, he's perfect in his judgment. If you're going to question his judgment, then first off, how can you even do that when you weren't even there? You don't have evidence to question a judgment. You didn't, you didn't live in that time to see the 400 years of slavery that they exposed the Israelites to or the gods that they were worshiping and, and sacrificing to and do all these horrible things, all this sexual immorality. You weren't there. So how can you question God's judgment? He was there. He's omniscient and he's self-existing. So anyway, number 10, let's move on. <laughs> Still bewildered by the existence of evil. 
Oh my goodness, he's not bewildered. I'm really not sure again what this one refers to. It's not clear from the timeline what's going on. Like, where was God bewildered? What specific verse makes you think that? I I can't think of anything. But I'll tell you one thing. God God has emotions. He's not bewildered. That's not part of his <laughs> emotions. Uh, but he is disgusted. He's disgusted by evil. Especially things like evil, uh, sorry, murder, child sacrifice, bearing false witness against someone or dealing falsely, not giving justice to the broken and the weak. Yeah, he's disgusted by those things. And he's going to pass judgment because he created you. So, you know, now that Christ has died for our sins, the world has been committed to a final judgment where God's not constantly judging. I mean, he's executing judgment in one way or another, but there's a final judgment. And you have a time to get right with God before that. And well, you don't know if you're going to die tomorrow, so you better get right with him today. So God's not bewildered by evil. He's disgusted by it and he's already purposed to get rid of it forever. So make sure you're on the winning team. Okay, number 11. Blames the devil that he created evil. All right. This, I I don't know what this one is talking about. Where specifically did God blame the devil? I, I really don't know. He didn't create evil. Remember, evil is not a created thing. It's the absence of God. That's first and foremost. You know, we have to remember also who the devil is. I mean, remember the I wills. Remember the fact that he wanted to be God. You know, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8, Peter warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so here we have a very clear picture. You know, he's complete narcissist, self-destructive, spiteful, and a devourer. That's somebody, you know, that, that doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies, according to Jesus. So is evil the devil's fault? Well, the simple answer is yes, it is the devil's fault. God doesn't have to blame him. It's obvious. The world is a fallen world because of the devil. Mankind obeyed the devil's pride, right, in wanting to worship himself. And we were punished with death for that in the sense that we, we die, we age, we, we decay. And on top of that, the devil's been allowed to have his way with the world. Look around you. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's not hard to, to realize that. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the devil's called the God of this world. That, that he's blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And why is he called the God of this world? Because people do worship the devil whether you worship him directly like all these elites do or where you worship him, you know, indirectly by just being lost in the world and, and putting your hope and trust and faith in worldly things like money. I was there for sure. Money, other people, political solutions. That's the world, man. The only place you can put your hope and trust is Jesus. So is evil the devil's fault? Yeah, it is. So God didn't have to blame the devil. The devil showed that <laughs> through his actions and through the things 
that he's done. Okay, moving on. Number 12. This one is, <laughs> this one's a big one. My gosh. I'm not even going to say the first word of this, but the first word starts with an R and it's a synonym for takes advantage of. So you can, you know, think of what I'm talking to say, trying to say here, but I'm going to say takes advantage of a girl. So she'll give birth to himself as his own son that we can torture him slash his son so that he can forgive us for being so evil. This is just mind boggling, but you know, it's, it is what it is. I mean, people who don't have the truth, they're blinded. Like two Corinthians says, the God of this world has blinded their eyes. Only the Holy spirit can help you see. Uh, there's so many crazy things with this statement. Where do we begin? So the, the first claim, let, let's start with that. We're just going to piece by piece. The first claim is that, you know, this whole, I'm guessing it's about Jesus's conception, right? It, it, the claim is against Mary's consent and that it was somehow not consensual, whatever happened, right? Now, Christians believe in an immaculate conception, right? The virgin was, uh, that Mary was a virgin, that this was a supernatural event. So, you know, let's, let's look to Luke one, which is uh, verse 38, very clear answer. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So very clear. Mary gave consent to whatever the angel had told her and she submitted to God's will. So to even suggest that whatever happened wasn't consensual, Never mind the word that this person used. Uh, is is just mind-boggling. Now, second, again, there's like these subtle little digs here. Uh, you know, took advantage of a girl. Mary wasn't just a girl. Okay, she was a direct descendant of the house of David, which fulfilled the many prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. If you bother to read them, her genealogy isn't explicitly written about because most of the time women's genealogy wasn't something that was written about, but it's implied in certain places. And her marriage to Joseph, who was also a descendant of David, kind of solidifies that. Either way, she was special according to her bloodline. She was also devoted to the temple very early on. She was a very, you know, spiritual, pure woman. Okay, besides the fact that she was a virgin. So if we look again in Luke uh, chapter 1, the angel visited Mary, told her, you know, all these supernatural things are going to happen. She's going to bear the Son of God, that she was favored. And Mary had a little doubt. She said, well, like most people in the Bible, and they were presented with supernatural things of God, most people, Moses, um, David, Abraham, so many examples, they all had doubt shows our human qualities. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Right, so Mary was like, how is it going to happen if I'm a virgin? Well, it's very obvious that she was a virgin from this, <laughs> but from the rest of the verses, you can tell that this was she wasn't the only case. The angel answered to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing is impossible. Nothing will be impossible with God. So, a couple verses earlier give us more context. Here's the thing. If you, again, if you believe in God's supernatural character, nothing is impossible for God. You know, Abraham and Sarah were seniors when God visited them in Genesis and foretold of them siring this, this whole nation of people. I mean, Sarah laughed when she heard that and God like overheard her and he's like, why are you laughing? I'm telling you a prophecy. Like, she's like, oh no, I didn't laugh. He's like, yeah, you did laugh. <laughs> it's just, these kind of things are actually kind of funny because they show how human and how true these things are. You know, it's not trying to impress anybody. It's showing the full human quality. And so there's precedence for these things. If you believe in the supernatural qualities of God, nothing is impossible for God. Okay, so this was a supernatural event. And it was consensual. And it was to a virgin who was very special according to a bloodline and her spiritual preparation. It was, it just don't demean that because that's not what the Bible teaches. So anyway, next thing is, let, let's move on to this. I think you get the point. The, the next part of the phrase goes like this. Give birth, so that she can give birth to himself as his own son, so that we can torture him, torture and kill him slash his own son. Okay. This shows the usual struggle for non-believers, especially with the concept of the Trinity. The Trinity is the teaching. It's a central Christian teaching that God is one God, self-existing, but he's present in three co-existing persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go into the, any proofs for this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's plenty of proofs for this. But the point is, you know, just because you don't understand that, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I can appreciate it, but I, can, I don't understand it. But just because you can't grasp that, why would you doubt it, right? So why, why do you think that, here's a better question. Why do you think that the only things that can be understood are things that fit in your brain? The most profound things cannot fit in your brain. God is an infinite being. How does that work? I don't know. How does self-existing work? I have no idea. But it's it's phenomenal to think about. That's why it says the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom. So many times throughout the Bible, and when we meditate on the Lord's character as it truly is, that's when we start to have an appreciation for these things. You know, in John 1, very beginning of the Gospel of John, one of the best, most cited things, it talks about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, yeah, Jesus is a separate person. He was in the beginning with God. He is God. And 
he's the second person of the Trinity. The Father is the first, and the Holy Spirit is the third. They're all three different people. God the Father wasn't on the cross. It was Jesus. This is like a common criticism most people have because what they're basically subscribing to, whether they know it or not, is something called modalism. Modalism is a heresy because it teaches that basically God is, it rejects the Trinity. Let's put it that way. That's the easy way to put it. It teaches that God is sort of in these different modes at different times. And it's just that that doesn't work because you're basically, what this claim is doing is it's making a straw man out of the Trinity, out of Christian views. A straw man is you're misrepresenting someone's views and pretending to refute them. Well, you're not refuting anything. You're refuting your own misinterpretation. That's not the Trinity. God the Father wasn't on the cross. It was God the Son, a different person. Still God. How does it work? We don't know. We don't understand the Trinity. It's profound, and it's something to meditate on daily. But it's a source of gratitude and appreciation. You have three people. As a Christian, you have three people in your life that are God. It's not three gods. One God, three people that are part of your salvation. Jesus, faith in Jesus saves you. Grace of God, the Father. He's the creator. He's, you know, he's he's the ultimate, you know, source. He's the transcendent quality of God that we, we can relate to through humility. Christ is, the way I relate to him is through gratitude. And the Holy Spirit is a person that's acting in our life to actively transform us, to guide us to truth, to open our eyes. I hope he opens this person's eyes. The Holy Spirit is the third person, and that's, you know, you surrender. So humility, gratitude, surrender. Those are the three profound ways that we can relate to the Trinity. And it's, it's a, it's, again, it's a profound thing to come to terms with. Will you ever understand it? Probably not. But that doesn't mean you can't appreciate it. Will men ever understand women? No. <laughs> women aren't infinite. But we'll never understand them. Well, we can appreciate them and love them vice versa with men or women with men. So look, you don't have to understand something to appreciate it. So this whole statement is just not accurate. That's not what the Bible teaches. God give not to give birth to himself. It was God the Son that came into being so that God the Father could enact judgment on him on the cross by punishing sin. Jesus was innocent, so he took the blame for us. And in so doing, that righteousness can be imputed to us who should have gotten the death penalty. Rightly so. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is that you don't have to die to God's judgment. <laughs> that's that's very good news. Because if you don't have the gospel, all you have is bad news, man. That's all you have bad news. So the last part of this is so that he can forgive us for being evil or so evil. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's I agree with that. So he can forgive us for being so evil. Exactly. You know, it's said that justice and mercy kiss at the, at the foot of the cross. That's for a reason. Man obeyed the devil instead of God. You have to wrap your head around that. He obeyed the devil, the source of all lies and evil. So he was doomed from the beginning to be judged by God. But God 
found a way. The wages of sin are death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So instead of judging us according to our actions, which more than would have been just, God made a way to be merciful through Jesus. So God was just by punishing sin, but he was also merciful by giving us a chance to be saved. And that's the gospel. You know, how many times have you stolen? How many times have you lied, cheated, blasphemed God's name, had sex outside of marriage, you know, not celebrated the Sabbath? Hundreds, thousands of times, right? Well, to a holy God, you deserve death. We all deserve death. And if you don't have the gospel, if you don't have Christ, then when the final judgment comes, you will die the second death, which is an eternal one. And look, some people think it's just being deleted. Some people think it's going to eternity in hell. It doesn't matter. I don't want to be on that side of the world. I want to be with God. So when you are in court, you cannot pay for your crimes with good work. If you killed somebody, you can walk a million old ladies across the street. It's not going to cut it. You have to pay for your crime. Okay? So it's the payment that saves you. It's not your good work that saves you. Well, Christ made the payment. You have to just accept that payment. So that's that's the gospel. The court of life is happening right now. And unless you accept that payment, the verdict is guilty. So... Number 13 says, just joking, three days later, and brings his son back to life, dot, 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 because he's lonely, question mark. I I just don't, some of these things I really don't understand, but he definitely never said just joking. Let's, Let's look at John 20, which is a great chapter that talks about some of the things that Jesus said. Let's see. So there's three kind of main appearances, Mary Magdalene, the disciples, and Thomas. So Mary Magdalene, we'll start with John 20, this verse, um, let's say 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus lived, laying one at the head of one and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. (laughs) Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So that's one thing that he said. Jesus appears to his disciples. It's a little bit later. Jesus, uh, chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of the day, the first week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, pretty profound stuff. These are pretty profound interactions. Jesus had just raised from the dead in a glorified body. And it's obvious that his compassion and love were just consistent throughout. Okay, He didn't say, just kidding. He didn't make a mockery of his resurrection, but rather brought peace and love. Okay, let's look at Jesus and Thomas. One more. This is verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, man, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Boy, talk about a hard sell. Eight days later, his disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So look, I mean, these are just a few of the things describing what, what Jesus said. And it's, they're obviously such a different quality than what this person is saying. First off, God never said just joking. <laughs> he never made a mockery of his own resurrection. Number two, all his words were about peace, love, encouragement, having faith. That's the God that we serve. But the God that these people serve, whether they believe in it or not, the, the militant atheists, they serve the God of this world who's a scoffer, who's prideful, who has to insult and attack everything. That's the God who they serve. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18. You know, those who need it the most will, will think that the cross is foolishness. I was once like that. Not, not to this extent, but you know, I remember I had a missionary come to my house and she was spreading the gospel. At the time, I was super in a new age and everything else. And I was just like scoffing with her. I was like, oh, you know, I'm living in the now. You know, I don't, I don't need to worry about this afterlife stuff. Like, leave me alone. And it was, it was terrible. I mean, again, it wasn't, I was never to the point where I was like a militant atheist, but I was a scoffer and I needed the gospel at that time. So the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are believers, it's eternal life. We realize the truth. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's so fascinating how a God hides this in plain sight. Because he's let the God of this world, the false God, blind the eyes of those who are perishing with pride. Pride blinds you and gives you a false sense of security. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of this whole story. All right, number 14. We're almost to the end here. Claims, omniscience, and omnipotence. I'm not sure specifically where this is, but it's true. Yeah, I, I, I think we can agree on this one. 
But there's some, again, it's these little subtle implications. The implication is that God doesn't deserve that or somehow, you know, he's making these claims like, like they're not deserved in some way based on the previous things that this person has said. Well, the Bible has a few things to say about that, and I'm just going to highlight very few of them. But Romans 1.20, okay, this is a great verse. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Look, we don't have an excuse. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. We don't have an excuse. Look around you. It's very clear that there's a creator. You know, when you see a building, it doesn't, you don't say, oh, it must have just evolved there. You know that somebody made it. Why is it so hard to accept something like DNA or a tree or just everything that's just beautiful of this world that that's been created, intelligently planned? There's no way that evolution or a Big Bang or anything like this could have created the absolute wonder of reality. It's impossible. It's literally the impossibility of impossibilities for nothing to suddenly explode and come into such order. It's just impossible. Not even going to get into it. But nature is obvious. And the Bible says it's, we have plenty of clues. God has made himself obvious. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, the, the vastness of the heavens. But it's not just pretty clouds and rainbows. It's also storms and lightning. The heavens declare the power of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence. Right? And so all these things in nature, they're clues that God is not only grand and omniscient and, you know, the creator, but all powerful and sovereign to be able to create such magnificent and powerful things. So these are the things that the Bible says. And yeah, God does claim that he's the Alpha and the Omega because he is the Alpha and the Omega. So I'm not sure what this claim relates to specifically. I'm guessing somewhere in the New Testament because we're in there right now. But, you know, God never beat his chest like, look at me. I'm omniscient. He doesn't need to do that. <laughs> First and foremost, because nature is a clue that gives us no excuse, just like Romans says. But he did rise from the grave. And he conquered death. And that's, he's the only one in history to do that. There's no other religion. Buddha, he's in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. Joseph Smith, he's in the grave. Jesus, he's coming back. So get right. Number 15 and final point here. Expects to be worshipped for his wisdom. Oh boy. Okay, it's true that God demands exclusive worship through the first four commandments. So, you shall not have any other gods besides me. Don't make any graven idols. Uh, keep the Sabbath holy. And I am the only God. So, ultimately, it's very clear that God is an ex he wants an exclusive relationship. But now the question is, again... God's character. 
if you question God's character, you're going to see that as narcissism, insecurity, things that people do. But if you understand God's character, that he's perfect, that he's the source of life, that he's the moral authority, that he's the creator, then, you know, like, it's a whole different understanding. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he sustains the world, the world, the entire world, by the word of his power. God is the source of all things. All things were created through him, just like in John 1, like we did earlier. Nothing can live apart from God. He makes it rain on the wicked, on the just alike. You know, it's like it's like a baby trying to cut its umbilical cord while it's still in the womb. I mean, that's how stupid this is. You know, of course, God demands an exclusive relationship, but that's not because God needs worship. God doesn't need anything from you. He's not surprised. He's not needy. He's not insecure. He doesn't require anything. That's human projection and creating a false God that doesn't exist. The God in this person's mind who wrote this meme is, you know, like some angry teenager who just happens to have lots of powers. That's not the God of the Bible. This person has created a false God in their mind. And this is the problem, right? God doesn't need anything. We need to worship God. God demands, God created the, the Ten Commandments as a way for us to live. Because it's obvious that when we don't follow them, not that you have to follow them to be saved, but when we don't follow what he says, we die. Look at the world around us. It's dying. It's going to hell in a handbasket. We're destroying ourselves because we're murdering, lying, cheating, stealing. We've forsaken worship of God. We've forsaken objective morality. We doubt God's character, doubt God's word, doubt his sovereignty. I mean, what do you expect? Do people actually do what God has said and not see the benefits? Really? That's that's something to look into because if you actually follow what God says, then you'll see that it leads to life just like he does say many times. So the point is that God doesn't need worship. He doesn't need anything from you. We need objective moral standards, which is God. We need somebody to guide us, to give us an example of how not to be lost to sin. We need a savior to save us from the impending judgment that's coming. Please, Christ, take my sins and pay for them. Please. I, I'm not going to try to pay for them on my own. Please. Because without Christ, there's bad news. That's why the good news is good news. We need somebody to pay for our sins. So, yeah. Yeah, he does expect to be worshipped for his wisdom. In some sense, this is actually true. God does expect to be worshipped, but not because he's needy. He expects us to worship him because he is the source of wisdom. He's a totally different being than any human, anything that we've experienced on earth. We, you can't project your humanity onto God. You have to try to understand God's character and relate to him that way. You're never going to understand him fully, but that's why fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. So, of course, he expects to be worshipped because he wants us to live. 
Just like a mother expects her baby to stay in the womb those nine months and not try to escape right, and die. Or a, ba- a child running away from their parents. I mean, we are dependent on God. So, of course, he expects us to do the things he said. So, it all comes back to those three lies. It all comes back to the three lies that Adam and Eve believed. And I'm going to leave you with this. The reason they believe those three lies is because they first and foremost created a false God in their mind. They created a false image of who God was. They broke the second commandment, I believe. Might be wrong on that, but they broke that commandment of creating a false image of God. In their mind, they created an image of God who wasn't reliable, who couldn't be trusted, who wasn't sovereign. So they believed Satan. But if they knew God, if they knew his character, if they knew he was sovereign, if they truly believed that he could be trusted, then they would have never believed Satan. And so you have to you have to watch for these three lies throughout. This meme is obviously super scoffing, but it brings up a lot of common points that people attack Christianity with. So I hope this has been edifying for your faith. I know it's been super long, um, but... I hope it's been edifying for your faith. Let's keep whoever wrote this in our prayers. May God be with them. Maybe may he open their mind and all and who all the people who see this too and, and take it into their heart. Let's say there's somebody on the fence and they see this and say, Oh, you know, maybe maybe that's right, like maybe God is, you know, a tyrant or whatever. I, I feel so bad for the misinformation going out there because Satan is just having his way with people. So let's keep those people in our prayers. I hope that this has been a blessing for you. Um, If you haven't gotten right with God, please get right with God. You don't know if you're going to make it tomorrow. And the world is being committed to judgment. And there is is a way out. And that's through Jesus Christ. God bless. And have a good rest of your day. See you.